This is a Watchdog Morning Show Rewind. Here's Howard Monroe. For the last several years, we've been hearing from the governor's office that we have all this excess money, excess revenue, that the governor has been so smart and uh, so sharp uh, that he's uh, put together budgets that have brought to us more money than we ever expected. Now, I, first of all, question whether or not those numbers are actually legitimate numbers. But I also then say, if we have all of this money, shouldn't we be doing something of some substance with it? First of all, we have a lot of serious problems we know we have to deal with, like the PIA problem. Governor's talking about income tax proposal, income tax cuts. Some of the legislature want to have business tax cuts. I, I, I sometimes wonder, shouldn't we be, well, I don't know, like giving money to people that need it. Um, but I want to talk to Kelly Allen, Kelly Allen from the Western Center on Budget and Policy, because uh, she and her group spent a lot of time looking at these numbers, and I thought maybe they'd have some ideas as well. Kelly, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Howard. So, for, let me be. Dave Hardy recently, before the legislature, said, "No, these are real numbers. It's a real, honest to goodness increase in revenue." Uh, over the years, I sometimes wonder how realistic these these budget numbers are, these excess revenue numbers are. You guys look at it. You're the number crunchers. Do we really have? Are we really like Scrooge McDuck in his uh, swimming pool of dollar bills? Are we that awash in money? Well, West Virginia certainly has a revenue surplus right now, but it's really built on two factors. Uh, one of them is temporary factors. Um, things like energy prices are really high right now, and that's leading to high severance tax revenues. Uh, inflation is high. That's leading to higher sales tax and income tax revenues. So that's, you know, about maybe about 60% of the, the surplus right now that we have in this current fiscal year. 52% of it's severance tax, and then a, bit, a chunk of it is, you know, these temporary things from inflation. As energy prices come down, as inflation comes down, those revenues are going to come down a little bit too. Um, so we think, you know, it would be incredibly fiscally irresponsible to base any permanent spending or any permanent tax cut like the proposals that the Senate and governor are considering on temporary, uh, temporary factors. But then the other factor is what you talked about, um, this flat budget. West Virginia's had a $4.6 billion budget since 2019. Um, and we all know the impact of inflation on our household budgets, and it's the same on the state budget. If you're not, you know, if you're not increasing the budget a little bit each year to account for inflation, that means you can do less and less. That $4.6 billion goes less far uh, a, and less a flat far. Budget is a, cut, a flat budget is a cut budget. Exactly, exactly. Essentially. Just simply to keep up. Just to keep up with inflation, our the budget that we should be seeing this year um, should be $5.3, $5.4 billion. And we're seeing what the cuts are, right? I mean, we see it through PEIA. We see uh, public employee vacancies. We see um, child care affordability crises. I mean, all of these are products of this flat budget that hasn't allowed uh, services to, to keep commensurate with what they were able to provide in 2019. So when you put those two things together, there goes your surplus. All right, well, let me talk about a couple of things that have been discussed, and then I want to see what other ideas that you may have. Uh, there's Obviously, there's a PEIA crisis, has been for a time, and we've, this is not something that's popped up all of a sudden, but the decision by Wheeling Hospital to not accept PEIA patients after July kind of forced the hands of somebody. So um, there's a lot of talk about simply taking big chunks of change out of the uh, general fund and putting it into PEIA to shore it up. Is that a smart move? Well, I think P 
PEIA needs a permanent long-term funding solution. So there's two sides of the coin with PEIA, right? There was a $400 million looming PEIA shortfall before we even started talking about reimbursement rates to hospitals. That's just, you know, medical inflation, increasing costs, and the fact that um, we haven't we haven't put any new money into PEIA since 2018, except for a one-time $100 million Band-Aid by the governor uh, in 2019. He proposed another $100 million Band-Aid in the state of the state this year. But we need ongoing revenue uh, to keep PEIA sustainable. And then, as you mentioned, there's a separate crisis that's happening where reimbursement rates for PEIA are too low, uh, and we're going to start seeing an exodus of providers out of the network unless we um, unless we increase those reimbursement rates. So, yes, um, PEIA is a really important part of the state budget. It's important for public employees. It's an important benefit to, you know, fill those vacancies that we're talking about. So, you know, let's say that costs $400 million a year to fix across all those things. You know, that's, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of what we're talking about here in terms of our surplus. But if it's going to be a long-term fix, it's got to be a guaranteed commitment over the years, not just we have extra money this year, so we'll put some extra money into it. That's right. That's right. So that's kind of where this flat budget is coming to roost, right? We haven't dedicated permanent revenue to that. We haven't built it into the budget going forward, uh, and we need we need to do that. And, in fact, if we do these big income tax cuts or business tax cuts that some um, some of our leadership is talking about and we continue to kick the can down the road, saying, you know, the PEI problem is not a problem for this year, then that undermines even further our ability to do something with it, and that makes the shortfall just get bigger and bigger and bigger. All right. The governor has said he would like to support a 5% pay raise, I think, across the board for everybody. I don't know that that's likely to happen, but I think a 5% pay raise in some areas quite likely will happen. But doesn't the governor's own proposal to cut the income tax, which means we'll lose revenue uh, because of that, doesn't that create more of a problem for him when he wants to increase the pay, wants to provide higher pay raises? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the governor's state of the state, I heard him name hundreds of millions of dollars in new spending that he was proposing. At the same time, he was proposing a tax cut that would eliminate a fourth of our general revenue. Um, I mean, it's hard to square. It's hard to square that. Um, Obviously, we need to give public employees raises. We've got crises happening, you know, in our correctional facilities and our DHHR and CPS. Uh, among teachers, uh, that pay is just simply not competitive to fill these positions. And, you know, that's particularly acute in places near the border, you know, where you all are. If somebody can cross the border into Pennsylvania and Ohio and, you know, see their salaries increased by 25, 50%, you know, we have to make sure that pay is competitive, that we're getting really good quality employees into those positions. So anything we do to slash the revenues that go into the budget uh, means that, you know, we're not going to be able to address those needs. And just to just to say something about a 5% tax, uh, or sorry, 5% pay increase, um, inflation this year is, what, 6 7%. So essentially, if the, if the pay increase is only 5%, um, public employees are going to be making less than they were, in essence, Still uh, a year ago. Ground, yeah. And then if we talk about premium increases on PEIA, that's another, you know, essentially pay cut. So we've got to make sure that, you know, pay increases are commensurate with the, the expenses that people are feeling. I have not read the governor's specific specific proposal, nor the one, which I think is the one that the House is actually taking up today. Um but to the best of my knowledge, there's been no discussion of what do we do to replace the lost revenue if indeed an income tax cut is 
passed. It's a three-year proposal, what, 30, 10, and 10, or 30, yeah, 30, 10, and 10. Yeah. Uh, but, it, but it's going to mean we're losing revenue, and I haven't heard any talk yet from the governor, and if I'm wrong, correct me, uh, about what do we do to replace that revenue. There is no um, no language in the legislation that the House Finance Committee passed last Thursday that the governor proposed that would replace or offset any of this $1.5 billion, with a B, dollars of revenue that would be lost under this tax proposal. Um, and again, to your point, this is really relying on these surpluses that we have right now. Um, that's what they're using to say, hey, we're doing really well. We can afford this tax cut. But again, not to mention the things that we need to pay for, like PEIA and raises for employees and child care affordability and all those things. But a lot of these things are temporary. As soon as energy prices come back down, natural gas prices come back down, we're going to see um, declines in revenues. When, with inflation coming back down, we're going to see declines in tax revenues. So we're essentially using these temporary surpluses to say that we can enact permanent tax cuts. And I mean, to be clear, we're used, I mean, most of this is severance tax revenue. So we're saying, you know, to these natural gas producing counties in your part of the state, um, instead of Instead of investing that back into your communities, into your workers, into your infrastructure, um, we're going to take that revenue and use it as a justification to give an income tax cut to the wealthiest households in West Virginia, because that's what an income tax cut does. Yeah, the argument can be made why it's fair. It's going to be a a, a straight percentage across the board. But the problem is the percentage affects the uh, higher income in a different way than the lower income does. Yeah, so uh, about two-thirds of this tax cut would go to the wealthiest 20% of households, dollar for dollar. One out of every $6 in this $1.5 billion tax cut would go to the richest 1% of West Virginians. Um, so this is overwhelmingly skewed towards the wealthy. Um, and, and again, at the cost of all of these things that uh, everyday working West Virginians really need. And Kelly, I keep asking myself, though, why aren't we talking about, and maybe you have some other thoughts on this, too, why aren't we, yes, I I agree, PEIA needs assistance of some kind. We've got to find a permanent revenue stream, and and certainly maybe we dedicate a percentage of the general fund. I don't know what that, you know, how we do that, pay pay raises and so on. But, you know, I haven't heard a lot of talk about, you mentioned, for example, child care. I haven't heard a lot of talk about addressing the issues of poverty. I haven't heard a lot of talk about addressing the, the hunger concerns that we have in many of our communities and so on. If if there is, and I know now my audience is going to go, well, you're just you're darn liberalism in there, Monroe, but shouldn't we be doing things that would directly benefit who people who are in need in this state if we have all this money? Well, I, I mean, we certainly think so. So, you know, we talk about this tax cut hampering the ability of the state to even pay for the things that they need to pay for now, things like PEIA and wages for public employees. Right. But what it also does, to your point, is it basically decimates our ability to make any new investments. Um, you know, we talk, you and I have talked about child care before as being a workforce issue. Um, when you invest state or federal dollars in child care, you're, you know, creating multiple jobs. It has a huge multiplier because, you know, your the child care worker is able to get a job and then all the families that can go to work because they have a safe place for their child can, can get a job. Um, we have unacceptable levels of child poverty, unacceptable levels of child hunger. And this tax cut is coming at the cost of any sort of opportunity to invest in any of those things. And, you know, the average household in West Virginia might see a few bucks a week, uh, from this income tax cut, um, whereas, you know, my, I have one child in child care, and it costs 
you know, north of $800 a month. I would be much more benefit from, you know, uh, investments that help me make childcare more affordable. And, and I'm better off than most. So, um, you know, there are lots of ways that we can support making things more affordable for West Virginians and growing our workforce without, you know, giving a bunch of windfall tax cuts to the wealthiest people in West Virginia. Kelly, you and Sean and your group will no doubt put together some numbers and make some proposals and try to show what's, you know, these kinds of things that you and I are talking about now. And you already have a number of things up on your website that people can look at. Uh, but here's my question. What do you do with them in, in, the, in the political environment that we live in right now where there is the super-duper, using Hoppy Kirchhoff's phrase, the super-duper majority uh, in uh, Republicans, uh, I mean, you know, the, I, I almost, I don't know whether to laugh or cry when I looked at the uh, state of the state and I saw that just the three s Democrat senators sort of sitting there lonely as all get out. Who do you even make your pitch to right now? <laughs> well, uh, math is real. Uh, math is nonpartisan. And I think the, the analyses and the information that we put out is, um, I think, credible to folks on both sides of the aisle. And, and you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to argue with it. But I think, you know, in, in my conversations with um, folks on both sides of the aisle in Charleston, I think they recognize this tension between the real need to, to fix things, right, the real need to, to invest in all the things we just talked about, uh, and the tension in the ability to do that versus doing tax cuts. I mean, you just simply can't do both. Um, and I've also, I've, I've heard a lot of interest from legislators in this, these severance tax revenues. These are historic severance tax revenues entirely driven by communities like those in the northern panhandle that have borne, you know, the the, the cost mm -hmm. of, of extraction and have that wealth under their feet that's created these severance tax revenues. And most states that have big energy wealth, they don't spend their severance tax revenue into their general fund because it is so unpredictable. They use the, the, that funding to fund, you know, infrastructure investments or to go into a, a fund that pays for like one-time expenses because, you know, it would be really irresponsible to build permanent spending into those. So I've talked to lots of Republicans, lots of Democrats that, you know, are excited about an opportunity to invest those severance tax revenues back in those communities where they came from. And, you know, just looking at Last fiscal year, 22 and 23, so far, severance tax surpluses are coming up on a billion dollars. I mean, just imagine what we could do with that billion dollars in terms of, you know, laying water lines in communities that haven't had clean water in years or, you know, investing in our roads, investing in economic development. I mean, these are things we should do with one-time revenue. We should be paying for uh, one-time uh, investments that benefit this generation and the next. It, it just seems to me this uh, it may be a pivotal year and, and maybe is one of several pivotal years. But as we have excess revenue right now, uh, we can fix some problems maybe, and we ought to be looking to to expand our services to the public. But we need to be careful because, as you point out, severance revenues at some point will go back again, and the excess revenue we have is at some point going to go away. And I'm still not sure that we're not totally being supported to some extent by some of the leftover federal funding too but i, I, mm -hmm. I worry that you know we end we could end this could be a year where we make a lot of, i'm worried we make we could make a lot of mistakes if we're not careful this year that's right that's right and i mean a, a budget busting tax cut like that proposed by the governor that would wipe out one and a half billion dollars a year would undermine our ability to do absolutely anything that we talked about today 
Kelly, appreciate your time as always. I really appreciate the work that you guys do because I think your point is very well taken. You guys base your 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 information and your reports and your and your uh, your, your proposals on on the numbers. Uh, you know, hard numbers, and you guys look at them pretty carefully. Um, and I always enjoy. Uh, well, not enjoy, but I, I am very well informed when I look at the numbers. You guys give me a much better perspective on things than sometimes I get by listening to apparently what little testimony we get anymore on the floor of the of the legislature. So I appreciate you being here today. And people can, can check a lot of this stuff out at wvpolicy.org and, and read some of this stuff as well. Um, good luck as the session goes on. I'll probably touch base with you as time goes by, but appreciate your help today. That sounds great. Thanks, Howard. Thanks. Kelly Allen is executive director of the Westfield Center on Budget and Policy. And yes, they are a left-leaning, hoppy they're a left-leaning group. Uh, yes, they are in the sense that they're, they think that it's more important to benefit the people of the state than it is to benefit the business of the state. And I tend to agree with that. Um, but they base all their, I mean, they, these guys are really smart with numbers. Sean O'Leary is just about as sharp as you can get in terms of looking at numbers, analyzing numbers, putting them in perspective. You can read their uh, their policy papers at wvpolicy.org and, and really get it. And uh, uh, they're about the only, if you don't think they're nonpartisan, I'll accept that maybe they have some partisan leanings. They're about the only objective source of information we have, especially now since the legislature has decided, eh, you know, we don't really need to have hearings. Eh, we don't really need to have testimony and experts come in and talk to us. We'll just we'll pass the bills based on what we what we think. 936, 24 till the hour here on the Watchdog Morning Show. Our team from the Big Seven coming by in the next half hour to talk about what's happening during the day today and what the news coverage will be. Before that, let's check in right now with Metro News.